Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. With his portraits of the Gilded Ages rich and famous, John Singer Sargent is often thought of as a quintessentially American painter. Born in Florence in 1856, Sargent shuttled across the Atlantic, painting society divas and wealthy eccentrics, Venetian gondoliers and Spanish dancers, imbuing each canvas with a sense of life and movement beyond the frame. But in his new biography of the artist, The Grand Affair, John Singer Sargent in his world, Paul Fisher delves into the hidden half of Sargent's life, the studies of male models and the romantic friendships with men that he kept hidden. Paul Fisher is a professor of American studies at Wellesley College, and he joins us to talk about what Sargent has to offer the contemporary art lover and how our understanding of his work changed in the intervening century. Thanks so much for talking to me, Paul. I am delighted to be here. So tell me, when did your relationship with John Singer Sargent's art begin? It's been going on for a long time. The, the first painting I saw of Sargent's was that magnificent uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner uh, portrait. And, you know, it looked like she just sashayed in from the past. It's a fabulous and gripping painting with her ropes of pearls. And that kind of won me right over to Sargent. And it was only years later that I discovered how often he had been in that very room and how important his relation with Isabella Stewart Gardner was. Yeah, this book is all about relationships. I am curious, though, you know, there have been biographies of Sargent before. He's been dead for a long time now. Major revelations of his, you know, of his art sort of happened in the 1980s. Why did you want to write this biography now in 2022? Well, the, the last full biography of Sargent was in the 1980s and did kind of confront what some people were saying about Sargent then, that his sexuality was more complicated. But what people were able to say and interpret in the 1980s was very limited. And this other uh, biography by a guy called Stanley Olson had a lot of shortcomings as far as I was concerned. Now, Sargent, you know, it's interesting that, that you'd say that. You know, he's been around for a long time, but his revival really happens in the 1980s, and he's become more and more popular since then. He had a long, dark night of the soul after his death and until the 1980s. And so, you know, I, I think, paradoxically, Sargent's more active as a sort of cultural figure now than he was um, back then. And there's been increasing interest in him and an increasing an increasing need to sort of reinterpret him for contemporary audiences. Yeah, I, the, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because I live in D.C. and I was lucky enough to see this Sargent in Spain exhibition at the National Gallery mm -hmm. and didn't even realize that he had been to Spain, didn't realize he hadn't visited the U.S. until he was 20 years old. <laughs> think uh, that, that's right. He'd never <laughs> even been to the United States till then. It's, it's astonishing. It's astonishing because we think of him as kind of this quintessential American painter, especially of portraits, but there's this whole other section of his life, this whole other section of his work that doesn't really get discussed. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about the things that you feel like needed to be reevaluated in his oeuvre? Well, absolutely. I, I mean, first thing to say as a sort of um, disclaimer is that I'm not an art historian. I'm a cultural historian. I'm, I'm trained in art history, but as a cultural historian, I'm interested in the social underpinnings of art. And so a lot of the things that I saw in Sargent were his sort of social debts. 
uh, the way that he related, for example, to women, which is a huge part of the book. Um, the queer sergeant, which is a huge part of the book and really is helped by sort of advances in our knowledge of queer history and queer theory uh, since earlier examinations of him. And um, on a more specific note, his relation to his black model, Thomas McKellar, which is a whole other dimension that I've worked on in other venues as well as in this particular biography. Mm -hmm. Well, let's start from the beginning, because I think one of the I was a little surprised diving into your book that so much time is actually spent not introducing Sargent, but introducing his mother. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, this formative period in Sargent's life and how his mom really kind of kick-started, I don't know, Sargent's interest in painting, in cosmopolitanism, in Europe, all that stuff. Um, absolutely. That's a great question, because I, I think that, in, in fact, Mary Sargent, Mary Newbold Singer Sargent, was a person who kick-started my book, too. One of the things that I felt that earlier biography didn't do was to give her credit. Um, uh, earlier biographies saw her as this sort of selfish character who, you know, because she wanted to be in Europe, dragged her children around the continent. Uh, but I think she gave her um, children enormous opportunities and that she especially did this for her son, John. Um, she was a Philadelphia heiress in a small way who wanted to become a painter but couldn't. Nobody let her. Um, uh, you know, Mary Cassatt's father famously said that he'd rather see her dead than have her study art in Paris. And so it was a really kind of outre, risque thing for a woman to do. But um, what I love about Mary Sargent is that she slipped out of her assigned role as a Victorian wife and led a really free-spirited life as a traveler and a tourist. And Sargent learned all that from her, both how to travel around and get the most from travel and tourism, but also how to be free-spirited, how to kind of slip out of the expectations. And it's no accident, as you're talking about in my book, that the first chapter is called Mrs. Sargent's Party, because I think she's the, the engineer of this remarkable childhood and training that Sargent has as a painter. Well, let's talk a little bit about that training. It takes a, a bit for Sargent to finally make it to, you know, Paris and the Salon. How does Sargent get started in his art career? And what do you think about this period sort of filters into his later work? Sargent is an amazing autodidact. That is, he mostly teaches himself. There's a lot of debate about whether he got more in his art training from his mother or his father. I mean, his mother took him out on these excursions almost every day. And, and you know, her, her one rule was that, that, that you, you had to finish a painting on the excursion. It didn't have to be good, but you had to finish it, which created a kind of rapidity and comfort that Sargent had that really served him well when he later became a portraitist. Um, but, but other than his sort of parents prompting him, and then in late adolescence, a few kind of um, friends of the family painters who kind of worked with him a little bit, Sargent had no formal training. The one year in Florence when he tried to go to an art academy, it was a disaster that the place just fell apart and then uh, all kinds of bad things happened. So that when he arrived in Paris, not only had he no real formal training, he had no real formal education. He got it from tutors that the family had haphazardly hired. He, he was a real wild oat. He was somebody who had not had um, a, a lot of formal training. But what, what was amazing is when he presented his, his portfolio to Carolus Duran, his Paris teacher, everybody's jaws dropped. They'd never seen stuff like this. And he had not had painters and masters um, overseeing his whole education. 
Yeah, and then he eventually won all the awards that the Paris Salon had to offer, right? He just, like, maxed out. <laughs> at, at a very early age in his relatively early 20s. Pretty astonishing. I mean, how how does that not get to your head? Did it get to his head? Um, what I love about Sargent, one of the many things that I really enjoyed about, you know, living with him as a biographical subject all these years, is he's not stuck up. He's this kind of modest, quiet person who doesn't seem to let these things go to his head, but has a lot sort of brewing down underneath. He was an enormously modest. He had a stutter. He was kind of shy in public. He didn't put himself forward. And in fact, one of the great mysteries of Sargent, which I address a lot in the book, as you know, is, is how this sort of shy, quiet, mild person really sought out these huge scandals one after another in his life. I mean, because he was such a sort of quiet, resolved seeming person. Mm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think too, so much of getting into scandal is getting into relationships with people to develop those scandals. <laughs> you know, like, exactly. <laughs> so what are some of the formative relationships that he develops that uh, get him into hot water or get him out of hot water? His scandals are of two kinds. They're his sort of public scandals, and those are mostly with really kind of vivacious, complicated women, the most famous example being Madame X, and we can talk about that more if you'd like. His private scandals, though, or the, or the scandals that he actually avoided are often with um, men and with, with sort of the, the, the male nudes that he painted, the, the, the men artist friends that he had, and those didn't become scandals in the 19th century sense. Arguably, they became scandals in the 20th century when this stuff started to be rediscovered and people didn't want to see Sargent this way. Mm. Yeah, let's talk about Madame X. I think people have probably heard the general outline of the story. The one I know is that he originally painted the sitter, um, with one jeweled strap of her dress falling off the shoulder and had to repaint it. Um, this is like the iconic painting of the, the woman with the black dress against the, the sort of grayish background. Um, but there's more to the story, isn't there? There's a lot more to the story. I mean, Sargent painted dozens and dozens of images of, of Madame X and his whole choice of Amélie Gautraud uh, as the the sitter for this painting is, is complicated, too. It was through his Paris group of friends, including this man that he painted earlier on in his career, Dr. Pauzy. And so people often forget that kind of antecedent history about his, his choice. She wasn't a friend of, of his. They didn't get along too well, but they spent a lot of time together. At the same time, it's also his artist friend, Albert de Belroche, that he's painting. And in fact, the two uh, sitters overlap in one famous set of paintings where the two of them are interchangeable. There's an image of Bell Rush and an image of Gautreaux in the same position, that he was using one as a model for the other, which is a really fascinating gender-bending kind of moment. But to go, to, to go back to the scandal that actually erupted, people didn't know about this backstory, but what, the reason why Madame X was so scandalous at the Salon was because she was a known adulterer. And to have a sort of present-day woman, well-known in Paris, kind of revealed in all of her cocky shamelessness uh, was one of the things that made the painting uh, scandalous. Also, her extremely pale skin, her strap falling down as if she was about to commit adultery, was also part of something called decadence at the time that was both very fashionable and, and very uh, edgy. Did she approve of the painting? Generally speaking, his sitters were commissioning lavish portraits, and they were quite wealthy. And I would imagine if this sitter didn't like the portrait, they could 
say, like, change this, change that. Was that the case with Madame X or, or like, was that really the case with his other portraits? A um, couple of good questions there. First of all, with Madame X, she um, didn't commission the portrait. He was doing this as a sort of uh, attention-getting piece for the salon, and it got him more attention and a different kind of attention than, than he intended. She certainly was very willing to sit for him. Uh, again, friends interceded and, and got her involved in this project. Um, over and over again, um, uh, he would paint her, so there was a, a sort of kind of consent involved. When the painting came out and uh, caused a scandal, however, she was really upset. Famously, her mother came over that evening and in tears and, and wanted Sargent to withdraw the painting from the salon and all kinds of things. So when the consequences of the painting, which I don't think she had foreseen, came along, she really didn't like it. Uh, about Sargent's other portraits, a surprising number of his, his portraits were not commissioned. He did them uh, for other kinds of reasons, and I think some of his best paintings uh, are, are those kinds of paintings. But what's interesting, I think, is even with his his um, portraits that he did for money, the negotiation among a painter, a sitter, uh, a patron sometimes, and an, an audience, both the audience of the time and the audience now. So they're much more complicated creations than people think. They're not simply products of genius or of commerce. Uh, they're collaborative and complex projects of Sargent's world. Mm. Well, what about the paintings and the studies that didn't have an audience at the time. I'm thinking of the male nudes that you alluded to earlier, or the portraits he did of his male artist friends or his male friends in general. How does that negotiation change if you're not showing it to an audience or if the audience is perhaps not a public? There's a huge um, division in Sargent's work between public and private pieces. And, I mean, it's a permeable barrier because, for example, he did the, the male nudes often to do other kinds of paintings, especially his paintings for the Boston Public Library and the Museum of Fine Arts. Uh, so so things move, in, move back and forth across the public and, and private boundary, but Sargent was very boundaried. And this, by the way, is a huge feature of queer history. When I teach queer history, we talk a lot about privacy and how privacy becomes a kind of refuge and a kind of prison for people of the past. And I, I think the, these kinds of things were true for Sargent. And, and it, it is true that, that um, in his private work, he often felt more pleasure in what he was painting. This was not true just of, of the, the male world or male, male nudes, but he loved watercolors, for example, and most of his famous public paintings were oils, but his favorite medium was watercolors. And there was a, a, a wonderful exhibition at the MFA and elsewhere a few years back about Sargent watercolors. And these are absolutely exquisite paintings, not only because of Sargent's amazing watercolor technique, but also because these are paintings that he found pleasurable, that, that weren't connected to the commerce of portrait painting, and that really let him let his spirit sort of free. And one of the big things I talk about in the, the book is how Sargent found forms of freedom and liberation in his life. Mm. Well, let's talk about those. What I mean, what do we know about the kinds of you call them romantic friendships sometimes that Sargent had um, because homosexuality, queerness was very different in the 19th century than it is today. I mean, how do you talk about the past knowing that we're not using the same terms today? People didn't identify necessarily in the same ways, but also, you know, by not naming things, it you know, could also be a form of erasure. 
Uh, absolutely. That not naming can be both sort of self-protection and erasure. And, you know, you're right about the terminology of the time. Um, the, the word homosexual is invented in the 19th century. It was uh, invented in German in, in 1869, didn't make it to English until 1896. And it's not a word that Sargent himself would have used for, for anybody much. It just wasn't that big a part of his world. The word that was most often used at the time was invert. This kind of mixes together what we now think of as gay and trans. It was a person who had characteristics of the opposite sex, an effeminate man or a mannish woman. Uh, even, even that sort of term didn't exist. And when I use the term queer in the book, I'm using a, a very modern contemporary term, but it's one that describes the nuanced complexity of sexuality and gender in Sargent's life, and it helps us illuminate his uh, works. Going back to the romantic friendship tag, that was one that people did use at the time. And some people, when they read my book, think that I'm kind of dismissing the queer content by talking about romantic friendship. Not at all. That's, again, a huge feature of queer history is the, these romantic friendships, often in the 19th century between women, but in Sargent's case, with his men friends, especially other, other artists, is a way people had of exploring some of the complexities of their lives and loves that, that um, gave them a certain freedom. It was entirely respectable. Mm. Well, what about his relationship with Thomas McKellar, which has the added nuance, the added complexity of McKellar being a black man and also you know, being of a, a lower class than Sargent. How does that play out? That is one of the most fascinating relationships in all of Sargent's uh, life. Um, and of course, it was the subject of a wonderful exhibition at the Gardner Museum in 2020 called Boston's Apollo, uh, in, in which I was lucky enough to participate and I contributed an essay, the first ever biography of, of, of Sargent's lost model. Um, what's, what's interesting is that for years, uh, um, scholars were relatively uninterested in models. They saw them as kind of props that a that a, a, an artist would use to sort of fulfill his, and it was usually his, genius. And they, they didn't sort of see them as collaborators or as co-creators. And there's been a change. I mean, I think I talk a lot about models in general in, in this book because I think Sargent's models contribute in complicated ways to the outcomes of his paintings. And so it's more of a collaboration than a, than a subject-object kind of relationship. With, with McKellar, I think the whole story is so much more complicated. And we don't know what the relationship uh, between them was, whether it was merely professional or a friendship or a, a love relation of some kind, whether it was uh, one way or mutual, we don't really know. Um, one of the challenges we had was even to resurrect more of um, McKellar's story because uh, uh, because of race and other things, there's a lot of the story that's suppressed. And to the extent that we were able to revive this story and try to give this man a voice, it, it turns out to create all kinds of richness and complexity that was previously really lacking in this story. Well, did McKellar or did any of the other um, subjects, co-collaborators that Sargent painted write about the experience? Like, do we have their perspective? And, and really, how much of Sargent's perspective do we have? How many of his letters survive? Um, my previous project was on Henry James, um, for whom there are about 10,000 surviving let letters, many of which I read for that project. With Sargent, there are many fewer. Um, both both um, Sargent and James were letter burners, there's no none of the correspondence between them except for one letter each way survives. 
So Sargent is much harder to interpret. And I spent many an afternoon in an archive reading through a Sargent letter. His handwriting is incredibly difficult. <laughs> and I would spend a whole morning, you know, figuring out a letter. And it said, yeah, I'll be at lunch at 1 p.m. I mean, Sargent was very laconic and didn't express a lot in his letters. So um, th that's a that's a big part of it is that Sargent, you know, doesn't discuss a lot of this. As for his models, um, two of his models um, came out with accounts of what it was like to model for him. The first one was his longtime companion and also servant or valet, a, a guy called Nicola D'Inverno that, that he basically lived with for 25 years in, in Boston. And he published it a short uh, account of their relationship in a Boston uh, newspaper after Sargent's death. And this is an incredible mine of interesting information. The other model who, who because McKellar never did that much. McKellar was interviewed in, the, I think, the 1950s and said a couple of things briefly, but didn't really say much about the whole experience, interestingly. But the other model who said a lot was a guy called Anton Camp. And Camp leaves detailed descriptions of what happened in Sargent's studio. And that's one of my last chapters in the book, because there's so much interesting stuff about the interactions. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm also curious, too, about the models that are not American or English or even, mm -hmm. you know, unnamed. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the big subjects of his time in Spain, which I feel like I know more about than before because <laughs> of that wonderful exhibition, are his Roma subjects. And he's painting at a time where Orientalism is peaking. I don't know if Orientalism really will ever peak, but it was really right. bad at the time. Right. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, some of the commentary from present day Roma critics that they had in little, you know, um, labels on the wall talked about how refreshingly humanizing mm -hmm. Sargent's paintings were in some ways. So what do we know about his, you know, his relationship with those kinds of sitters? Well, he dealt with a lot of non-Western sitters, not only the Roma in Spain, but he traveled in the Middle East and North Africa and was dealing with lots of sort of colonized peoples. And another thing to keep in mind is that even Southern Europeans, and this is true of, of Spanish people more generally and Italians, were racialized as others in the 19th century. What we now think of as ethnicity was highly racialized. So Sargent, having grown up largely in places like Italy, uh, is an interesting kind of bridge figure. He he relates more strongly to these people sometimes than to sort of no Northwest Europeans, French people, and English people. And he famously said when traveling in the Middle East that he really hoped not to encounter Westerners, which is a, a, a very kind of privileged Orientalist view in itself. Uh, but, you know, so he, on the one hand, he really does contribute to c colonialist points of view. A lot of his works are fairly exoticized and Orientalist. At the same time, what you said from that ex exhibition is what I say all over the place in, in, in my book, which is that on the one hand, he's part exploitative colonizer. And on the other hand, he's somebody that has remarkably um, uh, humanizing tendencies. And this is true of Thomas McKellar, too, that, that he, he has a way of sort of seeing through some of the dynamics of the time and, and seeing human beings in more complex ways. And if we look at, at the way that other artists of the time portrayed, say, black people in the U.S. or Arabs or others uh, in, in the, the old world, Sargent's portraits and figure studies really stand out as, as humanizing the way that his portraits of women, too, are so much more dynamic. 
And this, I think, is one of the reasons why he's still viewable, because I think there's a lot of complexity and a lot of um, humanity going on. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about how Sargent was received in his own time, sort of at the end of his life, because I... I kind of like his later stuff, but at the time, <laughs> and even immediately after, you know, painting the Boston murals, all that jazz, he was, I guess, seen as kind of dated um, mm -hmm. or just not very interesting. And I just stumbled into the Boston library a couple years ago and didn't even realize Sargent had done the murals. And I was like, mm. oh, my God, these are amazing. This is yeah. incredible. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about... Why does he seem fresh to us now? Why could I, stumbling into the Boston Library today, be, you know, awe-inspired by these giant murals, whereas 100 years ago it was kind of a snooze fest? It, th that is, a, again, a very complicated story and one that I, I didn't intend to tell in that much detail <laughs> in my, my book, but ended up getting dragged into because it's so interesting. There are a lot of different ways of looking at it. What, what The way that Sargent thought about his his Boston murals, is that they were his version of the Sistine Chapel. He really admired Michelangelo, and so he wanted to do a sort of grand opus uh, of, a, of a traditional kind. He was also very inspired when he went to the Middle East by what he saw as, um, you know, antecedent civilizations. He, the, the whole thing is called the Triumph of Religion, and it's about kind of world religious history, which is a kind of weird thing that Sargent would do because he wasn't a religious person, and, and even his family wasn't that religious except for his father a little bit. So, I mean, the motivations are pretty complicated for this. He also was a society portraitist. People thought he was sort of shallow, and he wanted to prove that he wasn't shallow. So there, there, there's a lot of psychological complexity, I think, that comes into the murals. Uh, they're related to some of the male nudes that he painted as well. I was uh, on a program for the Boston Public Library where they had uh, an art historian who's really worked on those a lot and was saying a lot of things about the way that Sargent used a multimedia, that he used different sort of color schemes. And I think all of those things make th th that room a fascinating and glorious room. Uh, for me, somebody who's interested in the kind of human antecedents, the most interesting part of the murals is the Frieze of Prophets, uh, where he sort of translated a lot of his men friends into Hebrew prophets. And, and so um, another way of putting that is there's a big personal stake he has in this. And I think one of the reasons it's so interesting is it's full of intaglios, little moments of his personal life disguised as world history. Yeah, that is kind of interesting, too, like the disguising of the private in the public. Maybe he wasn't quite ready to air those male portraits publicly, but he could sneak them in in a way that maybe couldn't be read at the time. That's beautifully put. And I think Sargent did a lot of sort of sneaking of that kind, uh, sometimes consciously, probably, and sometimes unconsciously. And it's one of the things that makes his images so shadowy and rich and full of, you know, things that we don't quite understand, but that we want to. We have links in the show notes to Paul Fisher's new book, The Grand Affair, John Singer Sargent in His World, as well as the artworks we discussed today. I also couldn't help myself from throwing in a couple paintings that we didn't talk about that haunt me, like this beautiful painting he did of young girls with paper lanterns called Carnation Lily Lily Rose. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs> <laughs>